Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. I'm so pleased that you're joining me today. This is going to be fantastic. This is going to be just stupendous. <laughs> because today, my dear friends, we are going to look at the stories of antiquity. And they are going to resonate with real profound meaning for you and me today. How about that? How about miracles? of yesteryear that can be found in the 21st century. I'm not exaggerating. The work that I've done in trying to put this class together and trying to figure this out has been daunting, however, enormously rewarding. And I'm delighted that you're joining. And I'm really excited to share what I've discovered together with you. So with no further ado, we're going to head into the sheltering desert the desert of antiquity. We're going to be going into these fascinating biblical narratives. We're going to bring up names like Elijah, Obadiah. These prophets walked the face of the earth nearly three millennia ago. And yet, when we look again, their stories can and should be as current and relevant as computer science. So we're learning Shara B'Tochem, this extraordinary book that was written about trust in Hashem, authored a thousand years ago. It continues to resonate with a sense of meaning, significance, and even urgency. People in today's day and age, in the 21st century, reeling from a pandemic, are learning to trust in Hashem all over again by looking at these words immortal words, eternal words, ideas that were shared by one of the greatest medieval sages, Rabbeinu Bechaya, Ibn Pekuda. So, some of you have the new English translation, put out Kihat, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a page number because it's easier to read the text and you can follow along. But I'm going to tell you that I take exception to the way this, this is presented here. I think that it's woefully inadequate and really misses the key elements of the story. But I'll let you be the judge. Again, thanks for joining. Station identification. We are learning to trust because we want to live with certainty. And betochen, trust in God, is the key to unlocking our personal happiness and our inner tranquility. Much has already been said this is, in fact, our 22nd lecture on the subject. Episode 21 on the actual verses or words of Rabbeinu Bechaya. In our previous episode, we talked about the manna miracle. The manna was the way God nourished the Jewish people for four decades during the infancy of our nationhood, and as we elaborated on in the previous episode, the reason that Hashem raised the Jewish people from infancy to young adulthood, to the point that they were ready to cross the Jordan River, to live in Eretz Noshevet, and to assume a normal 
ordinary life, or so it seems, fueled by the passion and the fervor, the inspiration and the blessings of Hashem's Torah, was because Hashem wanted us to know and understand that sustenance from our faith perspective is not the result of our efforts. It is not the fruits of our labors, but rather it is the blessing of Hashem. Ah, why do you need to work hard? Because Hashem wants you to. Because the Creator doesn't want you to feel as if you are coasting along on miracles and just living off the fat of the earth. God wants us to toil. God cherishes nature. He wants us to live within the milieu and framework of it. However, ultimately, the thesis we developed indicates that the reason that Hashem provided for us in this miraculous, very strange way, where we never had anything in the pantry. We were given our bread for that day and that day alone, teaching us to trust that tomorrow's sustenance would come. That lesson was ingested and internalized. And it was supposed to accompany the Jewish people along their long journeys. The saga of the Jewish people and the establishment of our original homeland in Eretz Yisrael, and these very same ideas continue to accompany us as we sojourn through the sands of exile, eagerly awaiting for all of us to be reunited with the coming of Mashiach. But in every situation, in every time, and in every place, we are supposed to be living with trust and with faith in Hashem. Rabbeinu Bachaya now continues to illustrate this notion that God provides for us in a paranormal way, although it appears to be the results of our efforts and our labors. Rabbeinu Bechaya uses some very interesting words, and I want to remind you that the original text, authored nearly a thousand years ago, was written in, he in Hebraized Arabic. This is translated a century later. So the text we're reading is about 900 years old by Rabbeinu Moshe Ibn Tibbin, the disciple of Maimonides the Rambam. He was also a great scholar, a man of remarkable intuition, and really a higher consciousness that accompanied him in his writings and in his translations. So we're going to treat this text charitably. We're going to try to zero in on the precise verbiage because I think that will help us to appreciate the bigger story that's being played out here. In the words of Rabbeinu Bechaya, immediately after mentioning the phenomenon of the manna and the lesson that it was supposed to impart to us for posterity, he writes, and I quote, Ki hasibot einan nivtsarot. Now, asiba in Hebrew means a reason or a cause. And that is to say, the cause, that which enables us to be sustained, insofar as God is concerned, einan nivtsarot, are not, and here we stumble. The word nivtsarot, used by Rabbeinu Moshe Ibn Tibbet in his translation of, we don't know what Rabbeinu Bechaya wrote, but in all likelihood, it was the kind of word that could best be embodied with nivtsarot. And the challenge we have here is that this word, 
has numerous meanings in the writings of the Mishnah and the Medrash. Let me direct you to some of the commentaries written on Rabbeinu Bechaya as they struggled to understand what he meant with the word Nivtsarot. The commentary Pat Lechem states, Einam Nivtsarot says, Einan Memuatot Mimenu. They are not diminished from him. It, this language is not biblical Hebrew. This is, should be understood in the tradition of rabbinic Hebrew. Now that's an important statement because as we will see, this word does show up in the Bible multiple times. It seems that the Patlechem understood the mention here not in the biblical classic sense, but rather in the rabbinic sense. And he interprets it then as diminished. Why does he choose that interpretation? Maybe, I don't know, but perhaps. It's because Rabbeinu B'chaya wants to emphasize here that miracles are not merely phenomenon of antiquity. It isn't as if God is diminished in his engagement with our world or chas v'shalom ability to ordain our reality. Nothing has changed. The same God that created the world 5,781 years ago, the same God that sustained us in antiquity, the same God that appears on the pages of the narrative of the Exodus and the giving of the Torah, it's the same God who later is found in the pages of the Bible as the Jewish people are living in the land of Israel in natural means. And that's the same God that accompanies you and I today in the 21st century. God's engagement has not waned or diminished over time. It would seem to me that the Paslechem understood that the emphasis here that Rabbeinu B'chaya wants to make and the message he wants to drive home is do not read the Bible as yesteryear. Do not read the stories, the narratives, the ideas of Hashem taking care of us as something ancient. And now, well now we're modern people. Now we live in a new era. God has gone on vacation. He'll be back when Mashiach comes. But in the meantime, you're on your own. Chas v'sholem. Rabbeinu says, The causes for everything that happens have in no way been diminished. The Tov Halavonon, another commentary on Rabbeinu Bechaya, he says, The causes are not nivtsar. He says, Are not restrained or held back. Now this would certainly follow the biblical tradition, meaning the classic idea in the way that word is used. An example could be found in the book of Psalms. In fact, one could go even earlier and find an example in the book of Genesis itself. In the book of Genesis, we read a story about a rebellious people, a people who espoused an atheistic philosophy despite the fact that they had seen and were aware of God's miracles. God had ordained a massive flood that had destroyed or wiped life off what we would call today the Eastern Hemisphere, Mesopotamia, the cradle of civilization. All of life was destroyed. We believe that all of life was fossilized through the extraordinary temperatures and the pressures brought to bear. The remains of 
people and animals sunk just beneath the ground. And in today's day and age, that's where oil is found. In fact, precisely where the Torah says the remnants of humanity and the animal life were absorbed is precisely where oil is found copiously just beneath the sand in today's day and age. Elsewhere, like in Canada, we have to do an enormous amount of fracking to get to the oil that's beneath, the shale oil that's beneath the surface. But in Iran, Iraq, Kuwait, it's just beneath the sand. That's the biblical narrative. In Israel, there's no oil. None of the remnants ended up in biblical Israel. The Torah is very clear, very specific about that. In the next generation, the people led by a man named Nimrod, a person who was extremely brilliant in his political machinations and had the ability to speak to people and get them to follow him, like so many of the demonic, atheistic, political leaders and monarchs over history. And these people, they build the proverbial Tower of Bovel, and they rebel against Hashem. Hashem says, Vayoymer Hashem, God says, Genesis, verse 6 of chapter 11, Hein am echad, v'safa achat, they're united. They speak a common language. V'zeh hachilom lases, and this is what they have begun to do. In other words, with unity, which is a positive thing, they have come together to rebel against God and to bring about an atheistic society. Hashem says, What does that mean, It will not be, what the Targum Onkelis says, It won't be, they will not be prevented, or as if, <laughs> Will we not prevent them? Will we not prevent them from doing what they wish to do? As Rashi tells us, don't read this word as, you will not. Bitamiya, with a wonder. And Rashi clearly says, following the Targum Unculus, the Targum Yerushalmi, the Targum Yonatan, three different Targumim, all using the same terminology. Yitmana, says Unculus. Targum Yerushalmi says the same exact words. And we find in the Targum Yerushalmi, Yismana. Rashi says, Yivtzer l'shoin miniya. Yivtzer should be understood as restraint or prevented. Will we not prevent them? Where else do we see this? Rashi says, take a look in the book of Psalms. In Psalm 86, 76, in verse 13, you'll see the same terminology. Okay, in Psalm 76, verse 13, which is the final verse of that particular psalm, it is said, Yivtzer ruach negidim. We have the spirit of the haughty those who are mighty and think they can do as they please. Hashem says, Yivzer. What does this mean? Their arrogance and pride will be diminished, restrained, prevented. The Metsudah scene is very clear about this. He says, This is going to be the notion of restraint or prevention. So there you have it. According to the approach of the Tov Halavonon, what the Shar HaBetochen meant to say is, nothing prevents God from doing as He pleased. If you believe in the Bible, I do, we should. If you believe in those stories, 
These are not the things that God could once do. Nothing prevents God from doing the same things today. So you're saying, well, why doesn't God show himself to us then? Why doesn't he do those miracles in today's day and age? And Rabbeinu Bahai is going to illustrate nothing prevents God from doing them. God chooses not to perform those overt miracles. This is part of the test, if you will, that we face, the test of faith that we have to overcome. This allows us for the freedom to choose, the possibility to choose inappropriately. For then, when we choose correctly, we manufacture righteousness. The basic ingredient in righteousness is choice. And in order to get credit for choosing right, in order for our choices to be significant and meaningful, there has to be a possibility for us to choose wrong. To enable that, God conceals himself. And yet, nothing prevents God from controlling things exactly as he wants to. So we have two schools of thought in how we should understand Rabbeinu Bechaya's message. From a rabbinic Hebrew perspective, God's might is not diminished. From a biblical Hebrew perspective, the message here is that nothing, nothing at all, can prevent God from providing for you. Even the notion that God chooses not to perform overt miracles today. There is a third school of thought, and I want to mention that to you because yet another commentary goes elsewhere. The Ned of Kodesh looks for the non-classic biblical re representation of this word. He sends us off to the book of Job. And there, in the 42nd chapter of Eov, we read of something similar. Here, in the second verse, Eov answers Hashem, and he says, Yodati kichol tuchol I know that you are omnipotent. I know you can do as you please. I know there is nobody who restrains. I know there is nobody who stops you from carrying this out. Now, on one hand, this seems very similar to the notion of restraint that we spoke of. However, perhaps he also would allow for another meaning of this word, and that is the way it's found in rabbinic Hebrew, from the notion of harvesting or cutting off, meaning there is nothing that cuts off the possibilities. God's possibilities are ever-present. There is no distance. There is no gulf. There are no circumstances that cut or stop the flow of divine energy. So regardless of how we perhaps understand this word, whether we look at it as a diminishing, the notion of a non-diminishing influence, where we look at it in the idea of nothing can prevent God or nothing cuts the flow of divinity, the point that is being made here is certainly that Hashem's presence and Hashem's power and the profundity of our faith should not in any way, shape, or form be diminished. God can, and Rabbeinu Bechaya will argue, does provide for us just as he did for our ancestors. The story of the manna is precise. He could have sustained us any which way. He could have given us a cupboard that never emptied. In fact, that's what God did for the first month after we left the land of Egypt until the manna fall. They kept reaching into their bags. It was like the Mary Poppins bag. It just kept producing matzah. And yet, 
at the end of that month, God says to Moshe Rabbeinu, now I will feed them a different way. And this will be Laman Anasenu. I wish to test them. It's a test of faith. It'll be bread that isn't normally digested. It'll simply melt into their innards. Everybody will be eating the precise amount, same amount. That seems totally unnatural. And most importantly, every day, they'll get their daily sustenance. No more and no less. In fact, it was a sin for the Jewish people to try to collect any extra manna. Only on the Shabbat will we allowed to take a double portion. And this ideal is so powerful that it accompanies our faith in Hashem, which is the essence of Shabbat. God created the world. He sustains us continually. And we believe that we can stop working for a day and still have bread on our table. So all of these ideas are not merely a story or a narrative of something that once happened, but they recall the past today. It's current. It's dynamic. It's something that's real and should be thought of by us on a daily basis. So moving forward in the words of Rabbeinu Bachaya, he says, nothing is nivtsarot, mimenu, from Almighty, from the Almighty. I mean, he simply translates that as lacking. I'm going to say the translation is lacking. Bechol eit u makom, in every time or in every place. Where do we see this? It's a very nice idea. It's a beautiful concept that this is why the manna fell and this is the lesson it was meant to impart with us. But do we see an example of God providing for people in a non-miraculous fashion just as much as they need? Not necessarily wealth or opulence, but enabling us to keep body and soul together. He sustains us. He gives us our needs. He never promised us wealth or riches. That could be a special blessing. Who says that that's coming our way. Just because you have betochen or decided, God will make me a multimillionaire, does not mean that you will get those oodles of money. But you will be sustained. Your needs will be met. I think it's reasonable or fair to say that whatever is considered normal, decent living, in any place that you are, that's the sustenance you'll receive from Hashem. And here Rabbeinu Bechaya uses a number of biblical narratives, fascinating episodes from the life of colorful prophets, Elijah and Ovadia, very different in nature. And yet, in both, a common theme emerges from the tapestry of the stories. Says Rabbeinu Bechaya, Ka'asher Yodata, as you might know, Midvar Eliyahu doesn't say misipur. I don't think we can translate this as the story of Eliyahu. A davar is a, it's a thing. The thing of Eliyahu, the things of Eliyahu, the, the happenings, the narratives, the reality. The idea, the ideal, it's a really all-encompassing word. Davar could also mean a word. The word. What's the word of Elijah? If you had to sum up Elijah in a word, was it purely miraculous? And the answer is not really. As we're going to see, Elijah's existence seems to kind of flit between the paranormal, the miraculous, and at the same time, 
very much within the conventional. It's like conventional realities that are totally paranormal. That's the story of our sustenance today, Torah teaches. That's what Rabbeinu Bechaya is trying to impart to us. In, 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 the, in this um, translation, the elucidator offers the following. He says, these stories, and I'm quoting, illustrate that God is not limited by nature and will always provide for those who rely upon Him for their needs. I find this lackluster. There are so many miraculous stories. The Bible's full of incredible events, people being saved in paranormal ways. Sometimes it's private stories, and sometimes they're very public. Why did Rabbeinu Bechaya choose these select narratives, these slender stories to highlight? I believe he's making a certain point. It isn't just throwing miracles at you. You wouldn't be impressed by that. You know there are miracles in the Bible. The presumption is that if you're watching now, if we're doing this together, we probably are believing Jews if, or believing people. If we wouldn't be believing people, we wouldn't be yearning or craving or trying to develop trust in Hashem. I'm not here to convince you that there's a God. I am trying to show you that that God that we both believe in is real and imminent in our lives every single moment. The purpose of this study is to take that faith, that belief from an atmospheric reality and to bring it home so that we personalize it, so that we can live by it. Along the lines of something that I've shared with you multiple times in these episodes, the thief, upon making his or her heist, is crying out to God for help in the way theists in the foxholes. And yet, this is a person who is contravening the will of God as he or she prays. That makes no sense. It's a paradox of sorts. But then again, such is the nature of faith. It becomes paradoxical unless you're able to harness and channel the faith in the way that informs, instructs, and uplifts the everyday moments of life. And that's what we're trying to achieve here. So we know this, says Rabbeinu Bechaya. We, can, we know this. And I, and I, and I, I want to emphasize also the word that he used. He says, Kasha Yodaita. The word Yedia in Hebrew, biblical Hebrew, comes from the idea of feeling something, being connected to something. The first time the word Yedia shows up in the pages of the Bible, it isn't describing an intellectual experience. It's framing the intimacy experienced by Adam and Eve. As Adam Yoda, he knew her. You must know this narrative, my dear friends. You must contemplate it until it becomes a part of your story. For then it is your knowledge. It becomes part of your experience. Kasha Yodaita Midvar from the word of Eliyahu, Im Ha'irvim with the ravens or the crows. And with the woman who was a widow. 
and the proverbial roll or cake that was baked over the coals. Udvar evadya im hanaviyim and the thing, the dover, the, the story, the happening, the word about the prophet Ovadia with the prophets. Not the story of Avadia, but what Avadia did for Hashem's prophets. Let's go to Elijah first. Let's analyze the words that we just read carefully. I find it personally, I find it fascinating that Rabbeinu Bachaya creates this seamless narrative of Elijah and the ravens and Elijah receiving sustenance from the widow. They're two disparate stories, although one follows the other. And they're very different in nature. Let's take a look at the story of Elijah, the prophecies, and properly frame or appreciate this narrative. I'm reading to you from the, uh, the new Steinsaltz edition of the, of the Tanakh, of the Jewish Bible. The commentary was authored, or at least reviewed, by the great Ravadin Evan Yisrael, Zechrin Lovracha. So, I'm going to, if you will, place my trust in the accuracy of this description, and in these few pithy words, I wish to kind of give you a sense of what is the background, what's the panorama against which these narratives are being presented to us. So before we, the, he introduces the 17th chapter of the Book of Kings, Malachim Aleph, the first Book of Kings, which he narrates or terms Elijah the prophet and his first deeds. He says that in the previous chapter we have events relating to Ahav and his reign. And then this section is going to consist of a series of episodes that occurred in the kingdom at the time centered on the figure of the prophet Elijah. Although the text does provide a few details about the appearance and the clothing of Elijah, it does not specify his tribe of origin. Which is, of course, really interesting. Let me share with you the opening words in the book of Kings, chapter 17. Suddenly we're introduced to Elijah. Vayomer Eliyahu HaTishbi. Eliyahu, the Tishbite, Mitoshove Gilad, from the dwellers of Gilad. The Metsudist scene tells us, HaTishbi, who is Eliyahu the Tishbite? He says, Meir, Sheshma Toshav. The Tishbite came from a city which was called Toshav. Now it's interesting to note that this city called Toshav is unknown to us. We don't have any uh, particular, shall we say, archaeological evidence of the city. We don't know anything about the city other than it had a very famous son whose name was Elio. We introduce him as the Tishbite, and then we say he is Mitoshave Gilod. So Mitsudas Tzian tells us, Mitoshave, this is past tense, Milashen Yoshav. In other words, he's originally from the Gilad, which is a province in the north, north 
eastern part of Israel. However, he eventually takes up residence in the city called Toshav, and that's why he's called Hatishbi. Metsudasian suggests that Mitoshavei indicates that he had lived, if he wasn't born, but he had lived in Gilad for an extended period of time. Probably his formative years spent there, and then, for whatever reason, he moves to Toshav and becomes known as the Tishbite. Rabbeinu David Kimchi has a different approach. He says, Hatishbi, yep, Meir Shashma Toshav. But then he says, after coming from Toshav, he's called the Tishbite because that's his origin, maybe his birthplace. And afterwards, Yoshev Begilad. So here we have two major commentaries sparring over whether Eliyahu came from Toshav or was originally a Tishbite who moved to Gilad or vice versa. We don't have clarity. Which is quite fascinating because the, the, the scripture, the Tanakh wants to identify, the Navi wants to identify Eliyahu but it doesn't, it doesn't really give us a sense of exactly where he came from. We know that this is a historical figure who was identified by virtue of particular geographies. So where was he from? Here the Radak quotes the dispute which is found in the Gemara in Mesechet Chulun. He says uh, that we have various opinions as to where he was from. Some say he was from the tribe of Gad, which would have lived in the Gilad area. Others say he's from the tribe of Binyamin. And yet, there are those of our sages who maintain that Pinchas is Eliyahu, and Pinchas, of course, is a Kohen. Chal Echad Mehem, each of these disparate schools of thought, of Torah thought, some each uses different verses to frame their story. How interesting is that? We don't really know who Elijah is. He remains somewhat of an enigma. Although we do get details on the clothing he wore. And we're even going to find out what his diet is. I think that perhaps it's important for us to recognize and understand that the stories of the Torah, the Pentateuch, the prophets, and the later writings are all instructive in our lives. That is to say, anything which is not particularly instructive for us won't be shared. We need to know that Eliyahu Anavi was a real person, not an angel, because there's a whole angel tradition that surrounds this individual. And as such, he can't be Eliyahu from heaven. He's got to be Eliyahu from earth. A particular part of earth. He was attached to a geography. He was identified by virtue of a province or a particular city. That means a lot because, because if Eliyahu Hanavi is a malach, an experience of an angel has nothing to do with you and I. And the fact that Elio Hanavi is later ordained to ascend to heaven in a proverbial chariot of fire or flash of light for anything that moves at the speed of light is perceived as light, is not relevant to us right now. That's an incredible story that doesn't impact the way you and I will live and chas v'shalom go if Mashiach doesn't come first. But here we're emphasizing as we begin to tell about the deeds of Elio, not Eliyahu the Malach, not Elijah the prophet, Elijah the man, a human being attached to a geography, 
not to a heavenly stratosphere. So Elijah, that earthling, a person living amongst us, is being introduced. What's his lineage? We don't know what his lineage is. The verses are sparse, but we do get details of his wardrobe because he's a real person. He needs clothes as you and I need clothes. Maybe he doesn't need such large wardrobes as most of us have today, but he still needs to wear clothes. And he's got a specific fashion or style. He dresses in his own Elijah way. You're entitled to dress your way too. As long as your demands are reasonable, Hashem will provide, as he provided for Leo Hanavi. Oh, you're going to say, well, uh, you know, Elijah was a prophet. He was a holy man. Of course God was going to do whatever he wanted. Don't be so sure. Elijah, first and foremost, is a man who lives with tremendous faith and trust in Hashem. His opening deeds really and truly highlight his betochen, his rock-solid belief in the words of the Torah and his absolute trust in the promises of Hashem. That's meaningful. That can and should speak to you and I. Let's go on. Radak tells us that you must know that Elio Hanavi here decrees that the rain shall fall no longer. It's a very brazen and brave thing to do. How'd that happen? What's the background? And here, in my humble opinion, is really the linchpin, the most important part of Rabbeinu Bechaya's presentation. Although he doesn't mention this by name, he says, I'm not giving you a quote this time. He's quoted numerous verses. He'll soon be quoting verses again. Here it's not the verse. It's the narrative. It's Devar Elio, the thing about Elio. The thing about Elio with the ravens. Well, in order to understand the thing, the Devar, the narrative of Elio with the ravens, we have to step back. We have to first talk about some land development and then a Shiva house. In the end of the 18th chapter, the Navi tells us that in the days of Ahav, the wicked king of the northern kingdom, a man whose name was Chiel built a city called Yericho, Jericho. But he didn't just build the city. Chiel from Bethel, a Bethelite, also a very real person, the name of his city that takes us back to the days of the patriarchs, builds the city of Yericho, which is on the border of the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom of the Jewish people. This was a city that had been left in ruins since the days of Yehoshua, Joshua. Joshua decreed that the city should never be rebuilt. Joshua cursed anyone who would build it with the death of all his sons. Chiel disregards the curse and he rebuilds Yericho anyway. And tragically, he suffers accordingly. So Biyomov, in Ahav's days, and this is an important part of the narrative because this is going to inform us of how Elio comes to be Elio. And it's not by virtue of an explosion of a vision from heaven. It's by virtue of betochen, 
faith, absolute faith in the immutable promises and the words of Hashem in His Torah. So in the days of Ahav, who rebels against Hashem, in the days of Ahav, when the Jewish people or Israelite nation is vastly engaged in idolatry, Chiel brazenly rebuilds the city that Joshua forbade. And he does so in full knowledge that Joshua promised that whoever did this would pay with the lives of his children. The Pasa goes on to say, Ba'aviram Bechoro Yos Yista. He establishes it with his firstborn, Aviram, he lays its foundations. And when he lays those foundations, tragically, his son dies. As Rashi tells us, Ba'aviram Bechoro Yos Yista, Kisha Yista when he founded that city, laid the foundations, his eldest son tragically passed. Rashi goes on to tell us, V'kovar, v'holach, v'kovar, kolbanov. He impudently continued to violate the word of the prophet, disregard the warning of Yahushua. It's actually mind-boggling. And tragically, buried child after child. Until the last child died, when he affixed the doors to the new city that he built, the new old city, rebuilding Yericho, despite Joshua's warnings not to. Rashi says, This is exactly the curse of Joshua. With his laying of the foundations, he paid with the death of his eldest, with the completion of the city or installation of its doors, the last of his children was taken from him. This is the background. Why is this the background? Why is this what, so to speak, leads us into meeting Elio Hanavi? The end of chapter 18 tells us, Kedvar Hashem, like the word of God, which was spoken by virtue, ages of the hand, or through Yehoshua, Ben Nun. So Eliyahu HaTishbi, not from the heavens, the Tishbite, coming from the area, the territory of Gilad, says to Achav, Chai Hashem Elikei Yisrael, he swears, he uses the language of an oath. And he says, Lest there be rain or dew, save by my word. In other words, Elio Hanavi promises Achav that there won't be any more rain. Why does Elio Hanavi suddenly appear and talk to Achav about the loss of precipitation on the heels of the story of the rebuilding of Yericho. Well, Rashi tells us, this makes perfect sense. Lama samchakan. Why does this come? Why does one juxtapose to the other? And he says, Halchu Eliyahu va'achav l'nachem eschil. Eliyahu was clearly a figure of some renown, a man of importance. I would assume he was a, a rabbi, a teacher. He came to a shiva house as rabbis, Spiritual mentors and teachers are wont to do. Chiel was a very important figure 
at that time in the society that had been built by the king or the society that surrounded the king, the king as well came to the Shiva house. They came to offer him condolences. Amar Achav Lelio, Achav says to Elio Hanavi, Efsher Shakil Lasa Talmud, Nitkaima, does it make sense that the curse of the student is fulfilled? The Killat Moshe Rabbeinu, but the Klala, the curse of Moses, really the words of God through Moses, Lo Nitkaima? Why would he make that supposition? Shenemar, for it is written, and here he references Deuteronomy 11. Chapter, chapter 11, verse 15. Yes, my friends, this is the Shema. We found the Pasha's Ekev, the second portion of Shema. It says, Visartem, you will stray. Vavatem Elihim Achedim, you will worship other gods. Vishtachavisim Lem, you will prostrate yourselves before them. Vachodraf Hashem, and then the anger of God will burn. And in God's wrath that burns against you, the Otsarasashamayim, he will restrain the heavens. In other words, there'll be no rain. Achav says to Leo, hey, Harikol Yisrael Evdim Avedazara. You know, my whole kingdom is worshiping idols. Life's great. The fields are verdant and green, and the rainfall is plentiful. Elio Anavi hears this. God did not give Elio Anavi a prophecy. He immediately responds, Elio. Elio says, then I tell you, the rain will stop. When he hears the king speak this way, he knows the time has come for Hashem's justice. If we look at the words of Radak, I think he gives us a, a fuller story, and specifically, there are five words I want to emphasize to you because I would like to humbly suggest that it's these few words that hold the key to unlocking Rabbeinu Bechaya's message to us. He is not simply throwing miracles at us. There's a point. There's a lesson. There's an idea which is being very carefully conveyed so that we can contemplate and absorb it. Radak, in a more fuller sense, tells us that these verses, the verses that we read introducing Eliyahu Navi, come because Eliyahu Navi is speaking not about a prophecy given to him, but rather a prophecy that came through Moshe Rabbeinu. But Eliyahu Navi is a man of great trust. He's a man of extraordinary faith. And he knows if Hashem said, it will be. When Eliyahu Navi is gozar, al-hamotar bikinasi, when Eliyahu Navi is angered on God's behalf because of the words of the king, and he says, you will see that the rain will stop, he refers to the words of Torah Moshe. As we just read in Rashi, you will stray, you will worship, prostrate yourself by idols. God, God's anger, His wrath will burn against you. He will restrain the heavens, and there will be no rain. Listen to the next five words very carefully. 
רד"ק says, ובוטח בכל שיקיים את דבריו. אליהו trusted, he was certain that God would fulfill his promise. בתוכן. אליהו trusted. אליהו הנובי makes a statement, a very bold statement. But he makes it based not on prophecy, but on trust. And it's because he feels this sense of vengeance. He knows, as Radak continues to talk about, Hakel erech He knows that God stills his anger, that God delays his wrath. And Hashem had delayed his wrath thus far. Herech Hashem had delayed the wrath. However, now at a Shiva house, a Shiva house is a place where people tilt towards faith. People become a little more observant. When he comes to a Shiva house, the tragic loss of a child, because of the brazen violation of Hashem's word by a very, very obstinate man, but Nebuch, who's now bereaved, Eliyahu now comes to offer him condolences, despite the fact that he brought this disaster upon himself. And in that milieu, when the children of Chiel have died, Eliyahu meets Achav, and they're there in order to give condolences. And Radak fills us in with the missing words. Va'omar Eliyahu, Eliyahu Hanavi, despite the fact that he came to offer his condolences, he did not blunt the truth. He said, Ki ba'avoyin shebona yerichim meisobonav. He said, this is the word of Hashem. Eliyahu Hanavi speaks truth to power unflinchingly. As we learned earlier in Shara Betochen, the person of Betochen does not shrink from speaking the words of truth. He's not afraid of people. Eliyahu Hanavi has on a mission. You have brazenly violated the word of Hashem and paid the price. This is the word of Hashem. As he had spoken it through his prophet Yoshua bin Nun. Omer le'achov, achov is mocking the words of Eliyahu Hanavi, who says that what has happened is precisely what's been prophesied. Achov says, tell me, mi godel, Moshe or Yoshua? Who's greater, Moses or Joshua? It's a setup. Eliyahu Hanavi takes the bait. He says, I'm Moshe. Moses is greater. He was Rabbo Shel Yehoshua. He is the mentor, the teacher of Yehoshua, of Joshua. Amar So Achav, mocking him, says, Are you kidding? You're so sure that the loss of Chiel's children is because he violated the words of Joshua? He says, Divri harav If the words of his master did not, were not fulfilled and did not come true, you think that Chiel's suffering, the death of his children, has something to do with Joshua? His prophecies are baloney. They don't happen. Haleomar Moshe, Achav, with a knowledgeable man. He says, I know what it says in the Torah, says the idolater. A Jewish king who tries to stamp out the Jewish faith who violates every one of his promises and Hashem's bonds, 
and Hashem's covenants encourages the populace to engage in idolatry while his wife instructs the armed forces to hunt down and murder Hashem's prophets? He says, you're telling me that our, our scriptures are real? You're telling me that our God's words happen? This is ether. It's Disneyland. This is ideas. It's nothing to do with real life. We live in the real world. Where was God for us when A, B, C, and D happened? As people say today. You think the words of Hashem are real? You think the Torah is actual? You believe in the words of the scripture? Ridiculous. You think that it's Chiel's children have died because he violated the prophecy, the words of Hashem through Yahushua? It's a coincidence. It has nothing to do with the Bible. If the words of Moses weren't fulfilled, the words of Joshua were certainly not going to be fulfilled. When Yahushua, when Elio hears this, this mockery of the Torah in public by the Jewish king, after a person has tragically suffered the devastating consequences of violating the words of the prophets, Kofetz Elio, Elio Hanavi springs forth. Now he's, so to speak, on fire. Venishba, he swears, Chai Hashem Hashanim By virtue, by God Himself, I swear, if there will be an ounce of precipitation in this country for the next few years, Kiim When I say there'll be rain, that's when there'll be rain. Eliyahu Novi did not get a prophecy from God. He did not get a God didn't tell him to say this. Eliyahu Hanavi stood by the words of the Torah with absolute trust in Hashem. And he knew that at a time when the words of Hashem had already been fulfilled, as we see, in a devastating and catastrophic way with the loss of Chiel's children, if the words of Hashem were now coming true, that Hashem's patience had expired. And so he knew and he trusted that what would follow next would be a punishment not for the individual, but for the nation. And so he tells this. He speaks these words as an expression of an oath, an expression of faith. He says, there will be neither dew nor rain in the land of Israel during the years, years except by my word. In other words, as it's pointed out here in the English rendition, from this point onward there will be rain and dew only when I say so. Elijah issued the statement in Ahav's capital of Samaria, which was in central Israel. So an emphasis here now again on geography, where Elijah is, he says in this land, right in the middle, he's in the capital, there will be no rain, until I say there'll be rain. At this point, Hashem speaks to Eliyahu Navi. What does he tell him? He tells him to flee. Why? Why should Eliyahu Navi flee? He tells him to flee because clearly the powers to be are going to come after him. Ahav is going to exact, exact a devastating kind of vengeance against Eliyahu, or he could. And because this is the case, Eliyahu must leave. Now I ask you a simple question. Is that miraculous or natural? Remember, we have emphasized this idea that one must make a vessel. 
Never were we told to sit and wait for money to rain from heaven. Never were we told to make dumb investments and expect them to miraculously produce a profit. We were told that Hashem would bless us with the efforts we would make. And it would look like the efforts we make are the source of our sustenance, but in fact, it's Hashem's blessing. Eliyohan Navi is not living a miraculous existence. This is not the King Arthur's Knights of the Round Table and the fables of them battling dragons and turning into toads. This is not Disneyland. This is not the miracles of antiquity. This is, this is an Eliyohan Navi who is faced with the real possibility of execution by the king and queen, wicked, rotten Jewish leadership of the day. He has to flee. We're going to find out that Ahab and Izevel were searching for Eliyahu to execute him. But Hashem told him to hide. So Hashem tells Elio, suddenly now the prophecy of Hashem is upon him. After he delivers this message, Vayid var Hashem, a love, the word of Hashem comes to him, Leich Mizeh, leave. Leave, go away from here. Ufanisa lacha kedma. You at this point are going to have to turn yourself eastward. Vinistarta. Vinistarta means you're going to have to hide yourself. Why does Eliyahu Navi have to hide himself? Says Rashi, Because of the designs of the king and queen to kill him. This is pretty serious. No miracles here. Hashem tells him where to hide. <laughs> He's the master of hide and go seek. God says, I want you to go and hide by a particular river. Where should he hide? Benachal Krit or Benachal Kris. At the stream of Kris, which is Alpneha Yarde. Now, as he points out here in the Steinzelt's edition, he says, Some identify Kiris with Wadi Al Yabis, a stream that flows from the, into the Jordan from the east. Indeed, the expression opposite Alpneh can occasionally mean, mean the east. That's what the Kafta of Ferech says. Others claim that this is called Nachal Tirza, or Wadi Al-Farah, which is in East Samaria. According to another ancient tradition, it could be Wadi Quelt. The reason that we're getting these details is because this is very real. It's actual. We don't have to know whether stream of Caresis. We have to know that it was a real stream. He was not sent into heavens to sustain himself. God said, go to the stream. Go to the stream because here's a place you'll be able to hide. By the way, there's a little problem. He'll be hydrated, but there's no food there. So Hashem continues to tell him, you go to the Kuris, and as if answering the question, but how will I eat? Hashem says, From that stream, you'll find hydration, you'll drink. And I have instructed ravens. And these ravens, Orvim, are going to bring you food. Now it's very interesting that he points out here that the raven is one of several species of the genus 
Carvus, which includes crows. There is no consistent distinction between crows and ravens. These designations have been assigned to different species primarily on the basis of size, with ravens generally being larger than crows. The Hebrew term orev can refer either to ravens or crows. Well, why don't Hashem just say birds? If it could be ravens or crows, then why don't we just say tziporev? What if turtle doves would have, bring him, would have brought him food? Ah, there's a message here. The message here, says the Mitzudas David, Hashem wants to stir the conscience of Elio Hanavi, who is deeply offended by the monarchy, who is infuriated with the people's infidelity. But Hashem wants him to still feel a sensitivity towards them. When he would see that the ravens or crows, this genus of bird, it doesn't matter which kind of bird it is, the point is that they are cruel birds. They will show pity on him to bring him food. And if crows or ravens, but a bird that is cruel and indifferent in nature, can show pity on Eliyahu, then Eliyahu can find it in himself to still feel a sense of pity rather than disgust, a sense of care and sensitivity rather than indifference and anger towards the Jewish people. So Hashem sustains him physically, but along with the physical sustenance comes an ethical or perhaps even a spiritual message sustaining the soul of Elio Hanavi as well. God demanded a lot from his prophets. They were abused, they were despised, they were hunted down, some of them were killed. Awful stuff by us, the Jewish people. And yet, the prophets had to maintain not only an attitude of optimism, but one also of deep caring and sensitivity. A deep commitment, an unshakable loyalty to Am Yisrael. This, of course, is the motif, the very essence of the life of Moshe Rabbeinu, who remains loyal to Klal Yisrael, to the Jewish people, despite the fact that we were so disloyal to him. For every act of rebellion and infidelity against God and Moses, we see Moshe Rabbeinu defending Am Yisrael at the cost of his own person. Said Moshe, impelled by his loyalty, he said, Wipe me out of your Torah if you don't forgive Am Yisrael. Eliyahu Navi is being taught this lesson by Hashem. Your anger, your righteous anger, is appropriate. It's a good thing. It comes from Eliyahu Navi's caring about God, his devotion and loyalty to God. But that can never in any way eclipse your loyalty and your devotion to Am Yisrael. Hashem's children, despite the fact that Eliyahu Navi is being abused, shamed, ridiculed, and even harmed by the very nation that he was sent to serve, by the very people he was sent to uplift and to positively change. So Eliyahu Navi is sent off to a stream 
water, hydration he has, food, forget about it, it's a desert, and ravens come, and ravens bring him food. What's the point Rabbeinu Bahaya is making? He said, this is very much within the frame of nature. If this was just a miraculous event, why would a Leonavi have to hide? Incidentally, there is another school of thought in the Talmud that the Orvim here are not birds at all, but in fact people, and not necessarily nice people either. And yet, these people provide for Eliyahu Navi. These, not necessarily Jewish people even, merchants or mercenaries, they provide for Eliyahu. They give him cover, they shield him from the royal hunt, and they bring him food. And that's actually part of the story. Rabbeinu Bechaya doesn't say whether Irvim are birds or people. It makes no difference. Hashem found a way. One could argue that, well, it's something that just happened. It's not an overt miracle per se. Birds can always have food in their mouth. Elio and Navi doesn't sup in a luxurious fashion. He survives. Hashem allows him to keep body and soul together. He's hiding from the king. He's running for his life. That's not miraculous. He's doing what he must to keep himself alive, to escape the king's clutches. And yet, Hashem is providing for him. In other words, within the frame of a natural reality in which Elio Hanavi has to go to an nth degree to survive, he doesn't lose his trust in Hashem. He knows Hashem will provide. Hashem tells him, I'll provide. And then it gets even more interesting. And I, I love how Rabbeinu Bechaya, he never quotes a verse here. He says, And with this woman who was a, a, a widow. So what happens next? Well, it's actually amazing. After the ravens are bringing him food, the raising are snatching food from somewhere and bringing it, according to one opinion in the Gemara Meseches Chulin on Dafhei, it was from the palace of Achav, the wicked, evil king who is trying to kill Eliyahu without knowing it, is providing kosher food for Eliyahu Anavi, and he doesn't even know it. And then, and then, after Eliyahu Anavi does exactly what Hashem told him to do, in this in this gorge on the stream of Crete, the ravens are bringing him bread and meat in the morning. It wasn't an Atkins diet, but it kept him alive. He's getting bread and meat each evening. And then, it's after some days, and then the stream dries up. Why? Because there was no rain. Oh, knows there's going to be no rain. He said there's going to be no rain. He says, a wadi. The wadis are not consistent sources of water. The wadis are prone to flash flooding. If there's water, if there's precipitation, then the stream flows. Otherwise, it dries up. So, the wadi predictably dried up due to lack of rain. How many days was it? It doesn't matter. It's not relevant. This is very natural. Elio and Navi can't remain here. There's no water. He's going to die of thirst. 
Where do you go now? Hashem couldn't have made the ground open up. The well of Miriam couldn't miraculously provide him with water. Elio and Novi couldn't look down and find a case of seltzer. It's still within natural means. Hashem guides him. But Hashem doesn't guide him in a miraculous way per se. This too is a test. Listen carefully to what happens. The Dvar Hashem Elov, Hashem says, Kum Lech Tsarfasa. Go to Tsarfasa. Where is Tsarfasa? The Torah tells us, the, the Novi tells Hashem Sidon. That is of Sidon. In other words, not France. <laughs> is Tsarfasa a city near Sidon? Um, in the Steins also dictionary says it's identified with the Phoenician city of Sarapta, which is known as Seraphan today. It's located approximately 15 kilometers south of Sidon. So this is the territory today referred to as Lebanon. Not that it's intrinsically Lebanese, it's probably actually biblical Israel, but today it's called Lebanon. The city is mentioned in the Assyrian and Egyptian documents. Based on archaeological findings there, it was a center for manufacture of earthenware vessels and purple dye. Interesting, because Eliyahu comes to this city, and he actually has a picture of the ruins or the city that's in this Phoenician city, the biblical Tsarafata. He has a picture of it right over here. So Eliyahu comes there. We're getting, again, exact GPS coordinates. This is not a miraculous event. This is not paranormal. It's not taking place in some ethereal, miraculous reality. He doesn't tell him to go to Atlantis. He tells him to go to Tzarafata, where Ashel Sidon. It's in the neighborhood. We know where it is. Head north, he says to him. Okay, from the territory, which is today called Jordan, he heads northwest, and he's going to Sidon. He's going into what's today called Lebanon. Hashem says, Sham, and you'll settle there. You'll dwell there. What will happen? I have provided for you. There'll be a widow, and that woman will give you food. All Eliyahu Navi knows is that the woman he's going to meet is a widow. He doesn't know anything else about her. That's a pretty profound identifying mark. It certainly excludes the vast majority of the female population, which is either unmarried, married, divorced, or single. Right? Like this is a widow, the slender, uh, uh, so to speak, part of the population. But he doesn't get an exact address. He doesn't get anybody's actual, you know, the driver's license. He doesn't know who he's looking for. He doesn't get a name. Hashem tells him there's going to be a woman. She'll be a widow. She'll provide for you. What does Hashem, what does Eliyahu and Navi do? That's no question. Vayakam vayelach. He goes to Sarfasa. Vayavayel Pesach. Here he comes to the opening of the city. Vahine shami shalmana. Would you believe it? Right there, there's a woman and she's a widow. How do you a widow? So I was thinking to myself, maybe because widows dressed in black those, those days. Maybe there was a, like identifying mark on the, on the clothing. I don't know, but it doesn't seem like that from, from Rashi. Rashi says, He didn't know that she was a widow. He didn't know which widow Hashem told him. So how's he going to find out? Rashi says something incredible. He says, He borrowed a page from the playbook of Eliezer, a man of great trust, sent on a mission by Avram Avinu. He knew that Avram Avinu is guided by a higher force. He didn't have any questions. He was the ultimate chassid. Followed exactly what Avram Avinu had. He had a munas chacham and munas sadikim. He believes in Avram and he goes straight to where Avram tells him. And he knows he's going to be successful. 
Omar, and he says, Oisa shatitin limayim, since I'm looking for water, probably the one who will give me water, lishtis he almana, she'll be the widow. And lo and behold, he comes to the city, and what happens? And over there, he, at the entrance of the city, there is a woman, and she's gathering wood. He says to her, please be, bring me a little water. Now remember, this is a place that used to manufacture vessels, so it makes sense that they had these, these clay vessels. <sighs> Go back to the words of the scripture. Vayikra'eli calls to her. Vayoyimar, he says, Almost exactly the verbiage of Eliezer, the servant of Avram, which is found in the story in Genesis. And he says, Please give me some water, bakli ve'eshte. Now remember, there's a drought. The drought may not have extended into the northeastern areas of what's today called Lebanon. After all, he made this, pro- this pronouncement when he was in Samaria, in the center of Samaria. This is north of Samaria. So it's very possible there's no longer a drought. But you just come over to say to somebody, say, could you bring me a drink, please? He needs to see. Is this the one? And he asks her for a drink. And she brings him a drink. Now, he knows Hashem said this lady's going to provide. He followed the word of Hashem with absolute trust. He went and he knew that if Hashem said there would be a widow that provides him with food, she's going to provide him with food. Now listen to what happens. This is absolutely unbelievable. He says to her, okay, you brought me what to drink. Hashem said that's going to happen. And he says to her, Please bring me some bread. Bring me some bread, i got to eat. So she says to him, She says, she swears by the, your, the, as the Lord, your God lives. And some maintain she wasn't even Jewish. Just a, a decent woman, a good woman, not even a Jewish woman. That's why she said, Alekecha. Another opinion is that she wanted to emphasize how much she valued and understood that he was a holy man. At any rate, he sh- she says, Im yeshli ma'og, all I have is a, a roll, a little cake. I don't have anything. Ki im kaf kemach. I've got a spoonful of flour, bekad, which is in this jug. I have ma'at shem and I have a little bit of, 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 sh- of oil, which is in a tzapachat, which is in a cruise. So this is a, a small utensil which was used in those days for, for holding liquids like oil or water. That's all she's got. Vihinani, she says, Mikosheshet shnayim eitzim. Here I have come to, to gather. That's what the word mikoshesh means. It's a word that shows up already earlier in the book of Exodus. I'm coming to gather some wood. Uva'ati, and I have come, va'asiti uli I have gathered this two pieces of wood for kindling. I'm going to go and prepare, this is a little bit of flour I have, for me and for my son. And she says, va'achalnuhu v'mosnu. We will eat it and we will die because there's nothing left to eat. So she says, we are so impoverished, we're on our last spoon of flour. Well, she can't make a loaf of bread. She can't even make a loaf. She's going to make like a, like a little cake. Probably the right, inter- the right translation is a pita. She's going to produce a little pita, a little piece of pita. That's all she's got. 
But Elio Hanavi knows that Hashem says that this woman has to provide for him. He has absolute trust. It makes no sense. Hashem said, go to the lady. You'll find the widow. She will provide for you. Elio Hanavi finds the lady. She's a widow. She gives him to drink. It's very generous. I mean, if these are people who are talking about dying, it's a good chance that there was a scarcity of water too. Maybe the drought had hit. Maybe they just were very poor. But Elio Hanavi knows with certainty, if Hashem said this woman is going to provide, she's going to provide. How is she going to provide? It's not Elio Hanavi's job to know how. His job is to just follow the word of Hashem. This is an act of absolute trust. With incredible faith. Elio Hanavi says, Don't be afraid. Go and do like your words. First, you'll make for me a little cake. Now, some maintained that Eliyahu Anavi was a Kayan, and because he said, make for me a little cake, he wanted her to do the mitzvah. And this school of thought, she would definitely be Jewish, as Radak says. says, first, make sure you're eating kosher. I know if you're going to give, eat kosher and give a little challah first to the Kayan, for sure Hashem is going to provide for you. Okay, this is one school of thought. It follows only one possible approach, because Radak himself said, many maintained that he is from the tribe of God, or from the tribe of Binyamin, in which case he wasn't a Kayan. So I'm thinking, so why was, why was he asking her? It's like, almost sounds selfish. Feed me first. Because Eliyahu Navi knows that if HaKadosh Baruch Hu said that she has to give him food, then that's her destiny, that's her mitzvah. If she gives him food, Hashem is going to provide. Eliyahu Navi says, it's not possible that Hashem would send me to you if you don't have any food. And if you have no food, it's because this is going to continue to sustain you. Just do what Hashem said, he says. Just give me. Just give me the food. doesn't matter. The fact Eliyahu Navi knows with absolute trust. I mean, he had... Every normal right to say, God, what did you do to me? I defended you. You sent me off to a stream, you make the stream dry up. For heaven's sake, I don't understand. I defend you, your word, your honor. I am a zealot for what is right. You want me to be kind, you want me to be compassionate, you want me to, pick, to have pity on the people, fine. What did you make the river dry up for? Well, they wouldn't have any questions. Don't you see the betach in here? Don't you see the faith? Never questions. God says, now you move on. No problem. Like the manna. Go to the next place. Seek out the widow. She's going to feed you. He goes there. Finds a needle in a haystack. The widow is there. He says, give me some food. She says, sorry. Prophet man. I have one flour, one spoon of flour left. We're done. In fact, this is our last supper. We're planning to die of starvation. Leonovi says, no, 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 no. Hashem said, you're going to provide for me. Leonavi realizes that Hashem is going to be saving this woman and her son now. As long as she provides for Leonavi, she will be provided for too. How? Leonavi isn't absolutely sure, but he says clearly, if Hashem said you should provide for me, He will provide for the possibility. That's faith actualized. That's living with certainty. In the word of Hashem, it's a man who's learned to trust Hashem. This is absolute betochen. So what happens? He says, don't you worry about it. You'll see. You'll feed me first. For you and for your son, you'll make after. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You prepare the flour. Give me some of the flour. Make me a small roll, just a little something. Elio and Navi knows he's got to keep body and soul together. Then prepare for yourself. 
For so said the Lord God, the God of Israel, Kiyomer Hashem, Hashem Elikei Yisrael, Kadakemach Lo Yisichle, this jug of flour will not be finished. Think about this. Think about the power of this faith. Hashem didn't say that. Hashem said she would provide for him. Eliyahu Navi knows if Hashem says she will provide, she will provide. How? She has something. Well, that something will work. It will enable provision. Hashem says it won't be finished. The cruise of oil won't be lacking. In other words, the flour in the jug, the oil in the cruise, is going to last until Hashem will send rain and everything is going to work out and the drought comes to an end. I guess this is part of the drought. Remarkably, the woman has betochen. A Navi, a prophet, a Rebbe, a Tzaddik. She's met for the first time. He tells her, this is what Hashem said. She doesn't question. This sounds off the walls to her. There's no grounding in rhyme, reason, or logic. But the prophet said so. She trusts the prophet. And so she acts in accordance with the word of Eliyahu and... To me, this story is telling us that this woman was provided for because of her trust. It's all about betachen. Every step of the story is about betachen. In each instance, a person is faced with insurmountable obstacles an impossible way out, and yet they trust. A simple woman is inspired by the word of a holy man, a prophet. She follows his word and trust. Through this, Hashem provides for her. A prophet is tested by Hashem. Much of what he does is entirely framed by nature. And yet, Hashem provides for him. That's not just some miracles. That's not, quote, these stories illustrate the God's not limited by nature. Nah. These stories illustrate how within the frame of nature and when you must do the natural thing. Remember, there was flour. There was oil. Hashem could have sent him to a widow who had nothing. Hashem could have sent him anywhere. Hashem could have sent him food out of a rock. A tree could have grown with, with carobs as it did for Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. It could have grown with dates as it did for the Jewish people. Is there anything that limits Hashem? That's not the point. The point is that even in the midst of a miraculous age, in a time when there was a prophet who walked the land and spoke the message of Hashem, he too had to live within the framework of nature. And when he lived with faith and trust, actualizing that faith with absolute betochen and Hashem, he was provided for. And so it shall be. So it was and so it shall be. So it was for Eliyahu. And so it is and shall be for us. That's 
the message of Rabbeinu Bechaya. Udvar Ovadya, we now, we skip over some remarkable, miraculous events. The woman's baby dies, Elio and every brings him back to life. Big stuff. Yes, true. That's not relevant for now. This is not about bringing stories of miracles. It's a totally juvenile way of understanding this. It's not about miracles. It's about Hashem utilizing the circumstances and situation. And in every set of circumstances, if we contemplate carefully enough, if we analyze deeply enough, we see the hand of Hashem and we see His miracles. Let's go. So we kind of skip forward now. We skip forward to Elio Navi being sent back to Achav. And what happens? By Yomim Rabim. Now we're in chapter 18. Many days passed. The word of Hashem is with Elio Navi. It's in the third year. Two years have passed without rain. In accordance with Elio Navi's declaration that he was not told to make. Hashem says, now go and appear to Achav. Now I will send rain upon the land. Achav has been searching for Elio Navi for two years to kill him. And now Hashem says, go to Achav. Hashem told Elio Navi to hide because Achav would kill him. He didn't say, don't worry about it. You, you sit pretty. When he comes with his minions to kill you, they'll be vaporized. A dragon will destroy them. Says no story in the Torah. Run away. Do what is necessary. Follow nature. Who saves Elio? Of course Hashem does. Now Hashem says, go back into the lion's den. You go face off with Achav. So Vayelich Elio. Elio and Navi follows the word of Hashem. He's coming Leheroi Salachav. The of Chazak Bishomron. The drought is terrible in the Shomron. And we hear by Yikra Achav, El Evadyo. Achav calls Evadyo. Now, Evadyo, the prophet Evadyo, is a person who's in charge of the king's household, Asher al Aboyas. And the Torah says, Va'avadyohu, the Novi says, Hoyayore as Hashem ma'oid. Evadyohu had tremendous reverence for Hashem. The Gemara Mesechah Zanhedrin on page 39 says that you should know Amr Rabbi Abba Rabbi Abba taught on this verse that Godel Shenemar Ba'avadyo Yesimim HaShenemar Ba'avram There is something here that eclipses even God's praise of Abraham. Ba'avram it says I know following the Akedah the greatest of tests you revere you truly, truly respect and are in awe of Hashem, and you follow my word. And here it says about Avadya, Yore es Hashem ma'oid. Avadya wasn't a prophet yet. Avadya didn't hear the word of Hashem. Avadya was a relatively simple person. We're going to hear that in all likelihood he was an Edomite convert from a nation that didn't produce people who are predisposed to spirituality or sensitivity, a nation that was predisposed to violence and vulgarity. And he's living in the cauldron of evil. 
He is the chief of staff, the director of affairs for the wicked King Achav and the more wicked Queen Yisevel. And he has a tremendous awe of Hashem. Very righteous person. So what happens? We start to hear about, in the story of Achav, here, there's going to be a story of Elio, but that's not the story that Rabbeinu B'chaya wants us to focus on. He says, what's the Dvar Avadya? Not the Dvar Hashem, the, the thing of Avadya. Imanavim with the prophecies, with the prophets. Sha'amar, that it says in verse 13, Va'achbi nevi Hashem me'es Pardon me, Meah, I hid a hundred prophets of Hashem, Chamishim, Chamishim Ish This is the story, this is the conversation that ensues between Elio Hanavi and between the head of Achav's household. Achav is terrified to go to. Uh, pardon me, Avadya is terrified to go to Achav and tell him that Eliyahu is here. Eliyahu and Avi says, go and say to your master, go tell your king, here's Eliyahu. So Achav, uh, pardon me, Avadya responds to Eliyahu and he says, it will be that I will leave you and the spirit of Hashem will carry you to where I do not know. In other words, you do not travel from one place to another like a normal person. You're carried in a wind that God sends you. You can vanish. But I will come and tell Achav that you have appeared. He will not find you and he'll kill me. In other words, if I just says, I, I, I can't do this. He, he sees Eliyahu Navi as a mythical figure. He knows nothing of all the natural means to which Eliyahu Navi has been saved. He says, you're like a magician. You're a prophet. You know how to vanish into thin air, but I am going to be left holding the bag. And he says to Leo, it's not as if I don't, I don't care. This is going to cause, this is going to cause my death. Is Achav afraid, not afraid to do the right thing? He goes on in verse 13 and he says, you should know that I do fear Hashem and I do the right thing. Was it not told to you, Elio Hanavi, that which I did? When Izevel murdered the prophets of Hashem, that at that time, I hid or concealed the prophets of Hashem, a hundred men of the prophets of Hashem? Chamishim. Chamishim ish b'ma'ara, 50 in each cave. Va'achalkalim lechem and I provided them with bread and water. Did you not know about this? And now, you want me to go and say, here's Elio, I'll present myself, and he's going to kill me. And what will happen to the prophets that I've been feeding secretly all along? They're all going to, they're all going to die. So Eliyahu and Navi says, don't worry about it. You do what I have to say. And Achav asks no questions and he goes. It's so fascinating that Rebbeinu B'chayi does not talk about the next story of Achav. He says, Achav of Avadya. He says, Avadya, that Avadya went to Achav is also a, a, an incredible act of trust and faith. 
but he wants to focus on something else. We have already now discovered that there is a massive famine. The whole country is shut down. People are dying of starvation. Avadya takes a hundred Nevi'im, a hundred prophets. He divides them 50 here and 50 there. Why does he divide them? Why, do, why does the Navi even tell us? A hundred prophets, 50 here and 50 there. What's up with that whole business of 50 here and 50 there? So the Gemara tells us, why did Avadya merit prophecy? And there's various ways of understanding why Avadya should not have merited prophecy, or it's surprising that he becomes a prophet. I don't want to go into the details. But why the emphasis on the 50 people here, 50 people there? So the Gemara says that that's because he hid these, these uh, prophets and saved their life. So the Gemara asked the question. The Gemara says, okay, fine, one second. This is at the end of the, the fourth chapter of Mesechet Sanhedrin. On page 32, side B. The Gemara says, Why did he hit 50 here and 50 there? So, Amr Rabbi Lazar says, Mi Yaakov Lamed. Avad you learn from Yaakov. Shanemar. What does it say about Yaakov? When Yaakov prepared to engage his brother Esau, Esau in battle, he took all the precautions necessary. And he divided the camp so that if one camp would be attacked, the other would be able to escape. What does that tell you? Rabavo says because uh, the caves he hid them in couldn't hold more than 50 people. Whether you follow the approach of Rabbi Lazar, Rabbi Avohu, it's natural means. It's not a miracle. The cave held 50 people. It held 50 people. He had 100 people to hide. He had to find another cave. Or, he fully anticipated that Ahav, the wicked, would come and hunt down these prophets. And that they too would be killed. And he did everything he could, the natural means to save them. He divided them in two places. So if some were caught, at least the others could escape. It's entirely within natural means. How in heaven did he provide for them? And he says, if I'm going to get killed, they won't be provided for. How did he do it? How did he find bread and water in a time of drought when people were starving? We actually don't know. The Navi doesn't tell us how. But it is clear that because of his trust in Hashem, and he knew he was doing the right thing, that he somehow managed and succeeded. He borrowed money. He did all kinds of things. He did what it took, but Hashem enabled the success. And the point that's made to us you do your part. Did he provide? Could Achav provide for those Nevi'im? It wasn't his household, but it became his responsibility. When Ba'ashgacha Pratis, it becomes your responsibility, you have betochen, you have trust in Hashem, and things will work out. They did for Avadya. They did for Eliyahu. And that, my dear friends, is the powerful message that's being conveyed to us. Not the message of miracles, but the message of nature. And the notion that despite nature, Hashem is the one who sustains and enables survival. And indeed, Rabbeinu Bechaya concludes with the words, So as you can see, the Omar. 
And this is the meaning of what says in the book of Psalms, Psalm 34, verse 11. And this is a verse that Abbe Chaya has already quoted before. He said, that the young lions might end up hungering or suffering want. However, those who seek at Hashem will not be missing any good. It's very interesting that in the word, they will not be missing any good. They'll have whatever they need. They'll have what is necessary. So the commentaries link this, this notion of that they won't be missing any good. If you take a look in the book of Tilim, in Psalm 34, he says, you want to understand the meaning of Cholteiv, of any good? Rashi says, take a look in Exodus 12, 16. What does it say there? It says, don't do Chol Malacha, don't do any work. It's the connection. The explanation there is, when it says don't do work in Yom Tif, don't do it yourself. And don't have others do it for you. Sometimes means through your efforts. Sometimes it'll be somebody else's efforts. But you will not miss what you need. You shall not lack or want. The message? Hashem's prophets needed to be fed. Hashem enabled Avadya to do it came with tremendous sacrifice. It came with tremendous, tremendous commitment and a great price. And yet, somehow Avadja succeeded. My dear friends, Avadja succeeded in his time. He wasn't yet a prophet. He was living amongst wicked, evil people. But he lived with betochen. He lived with trust in Hashem. The prophets lived with trust in Hashem. They didn't know how they would be saved. Avadio didn't know how he would provide for them. But it happened. It happened. And as the Paslechem points out, Avadio saw himself as the cause, the mechanism through which Hashem would provide that sustenance. Never look at somebody hungry and say, oh, Hashem will provide for you. I have betochen. Ask, how can I be the one to give you that food? Somebody once asked the Magad of Mizrich, didn't your Rebbe, the Baal Shem Tev, teach that everything you see is divine design and you can learn a lesson from everyone and everything? Of course, said the Magad affirmatively. Well, very well, very good, they said. What would you learn from an atheist? To which the Magad replied, how to give tzedakah. When the hungry person comes to the atheist, he doesn't say, God will feed you. He says, there's nobody to rely on but you. Avadya knew that if he was the man in that right place, in that right time, even though he didn't know how, there was nobody else to do this. He would have to be successful. The same applies for you and for me today. It seems to me that the reason Rabbeinu Bechaya brings both of these narratives, the narrative of Eliyahu Hanavi, which indicates that Hashem provided for him as he was living with the frame of nature, and the narrative of the Nevi'im, the prophets being hidden by Avad Yohu, because Hashem wants us to know that whether it's a question of us being provided for ourselves, sometimes through others, or whether it's a question of others being there to provide for them, when it's your responsibility, when it's your issue, when you step up to the plate with betochen, 
Hashem will take care of you. He will provide, you will prevail. Success is assured. The young lions could refer to a variety of things. They could indeed be young, strong lions, or it could be a euphemism. It could represent people who have great force and power, people who are brutal, people who are aggressive, people who literally behave like animals of prey as they seek to exact profit, caring less about the pain or gain of others. And yet, they won't always succeed. Sometimes they succeed, as Radak says, and sometimes they go hungry. Their might, their valor, their wherewithal and ability is never an assured way for them to achieve their goals. However, in the end, those who seek Hashem will never lack. My friends, we must strengthen ourselves in Abitachim because the stronger our trust in Hashem is, the stronger are the methodologies and the causes and the direct pipeline of blessing that will come our way. Betochen brings Hashem's blessing like nothing else in the world. And that's the powerful lesson that Rabbeinu B'chayi imparts to us as we contemplate the narratives of these biblical figures. It was true then and it's true today. Hashem should give us that koyach and we should muster the strength and the courage to continue to live with absolute trust and betachen in Hashem. For then, we will not be missing the things we need and hopefully we will merit a time in which there will be no needs for such as the way the prophets described the coming of Mashiach, Bimheira, will be amen amen. Thank you so much for joining today. I hope you found these lessons life-affirming and uplifting. And I invite you to continue to join me on a daily basis as we learn to trust in Hashem and live with certainty. If you haven't yet subscribed, please do so at youtube.com forward slash Rabbi Mendel Kaplan. Thank you and have a beautiful day.